Hello and welcome to Grow Up Summer School, an APG Canada podcast where we give strategic thinkers and creative tinkers opportunities to grow. I'm your host, Michelle Lee, and this week on the show, we'll be talking culture. Culture is one of the key ingredients to building any successful brand. So for the next few days, we'll be exploring this topic from all different angles, from how to connect with niche groups to how to build cult brands to today's topic, how to leverage a psychedelic experience, even if you haven't had one yourself. Today, we're talking to Emily Squirrel, Senior Director of Purpose and Strategy at Gene. Just before we dive in, we'd like to give a special shout out to the team at Mint for sponsoring this week's episode. As one of Canada's leading strategy departments and supporters of strategic planning, they've shown a keen interest in continuing to help us foster and strengthen Canada's strategic talent. And for that, we thank you. Um, yeah, so I'm Senior Director of Purpose and Strategy at Gene. Uh, we are part of Plus Company. Uh, one of our well-known sister companies is Cassette. And I've been in advertising for about 12 to 15 years and most recently kind of focused my strategy and planning work in the health sector. But I've always been interested in health, psychology, and communication. That's really kind of the trifecta for me. So my ac- academic background is in psychology, behavioral psych, uh, cognitive psych, philosophy. I have a diploma in behavioral science where I worked with some special populations children with um, autism and adults with acquired brain injury. So I kind of started in science and health sciences and then slowly moved into philosophy, uh, mental health, and then creativity and advertising. So um, I've always been passionate about, you know, storytelling and how storytelling is a part of how we stay healthy as a culture. And so those two pieces, kind of the human experience, storytelling and advertising being the modern way we tell stories is kind of how I made my way to Gene and and continue to focus on health and healthy stories today. It's a really interesting uh, background. Um, and, and, and so this topic, um, you know, you, you kind of piqued my curiosity immediately when you kind of reached out um, and said that you wanted to talk about it. Can you tell us a bit more about um, you know, how you came to this topic and, and, and some of your, your perspectives on it? Yes, absolutely. So storytelling has always been a, qu- a question I've always asked myself is, are we telling ourselves and each other good stories? Are they ones that make us healthy and well? And as advertisers, you know, I'm not always convinced that we're doing that all of the time. And so my pursuit has constantly been, you know, what keeps us healthy and well from a social standpoint, a societal standpoint. And I've been curious about all the dimensions of being human, everything from physical, mental, emotional, behavioral. And then it started to move into philosophical, anthropological, and started to bridge into you know spiritual and cultural studies from around the world. Um, one of the things I often say when we talk about brand planners is when I was a young brand planner, you know, everybody said, planning is an outdoor sport and it's best kind of exercised if you're out in the world and you know you're a part of the culture that you wish to influence you know get out there but no one ever really talks about um, the deep kind of heartbreaking aspect of being a planner when you're out there which is you know you're not out there just observing without being connected to the things that you observe so I started going out there and feeling the world and what was happening. And um, the truth was it, 
it broke my heart. And I realized that the world is in a situation that needs our help. And I partly blame uh, brand planning philosophy for that, who sent me out there to go look for insights. Well, I found them, you know, I found insights and they were the ones that um, opened me up empathetically and emotionally. And I started to wonder, you know, what do some of these cultures around the world do well to keep their people healthy and happy and well and um, socially connected? And so that led me to different places in the world. You know, I studied Buddhism and I studied um, South American culture. And, and that kind of made me slowly move towards um, more indigenous methods and philosophies, uh, which started to bridge into how do these people share stories of well-being and health? And um, that brought me to plant medicine. And I realized, wow, these people, these cultures do something that is completely foreign to me which is they use psychedelics for the purposes of health and healing and maturity. I thought that was pretty interesting. So that's kind of what got me into it, got me curious about it. So, so when you said, when you went out into the world and uh, I'm paraphrasing, so maybe may not have gotten this right, but you were, like, so you were finding people that were unwell, like were you, were you hearing stories of, I don't know, loneliness or depression or like what, what, what did you find out there? Yeah, well, you know, they always say the crux of all creative strategy and planning is insight, right? And if you don't have an insight, kind of what are you doing as a strategist and as, as a planner? And insights, you know, really require you to be on the inside with the people that you study, you know? Um, and so in trying to glean good insights, I heard a lot of people's stories. You know, I listened to single moms and I listened to families that were struggling and I listened to, um, you know, different generational viewpoints about what they thought about the world and economics and where it was going and whose fault it was. And it just started to create some bigger pictures for me where I, I realized, you know, uh, how much, how disconnected so many of us feel, um, how lots of us think and move in ways that are more short term and potentially not in our best interest. Um, you know, how education played a huge role, how, you know, diabetes, as an example, is one of the fastest growing illnesses, and it is largely preventable, uh, reversible. And a lot of our culture kind of pushes people towards diabetes type two diagnosis. So I started like, oh, man, this is, these are some big trends that um, I feel responsible for a little bit as a brand planner in like, am I telling good stories uh, in advertising that enhance my culture's health and well-being, Or like, what kind of stories am I participating in? And am I helping people to be well? Because at the end of the day, I want to feel like my life and my work contributed to a better world. You know, that's how I want to feel at the end of my life. So, um, how would you define psychedelics or how should we think of them? Because I think it's a, it's a word that's become more and more like we're hearing more about it and it's becoming more mainstream. So let, let, can we start with the definition? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question because, you know, psychedelics have really not been a part of the conversation for a number of decades in North America. So when we're talking about psychedelics, um, you know, it's a, it's not a huge category and there are classical psychedelics, and then some other 
uh, drugs or medicines that are sometimes used in the same fashion, but not necessarily necessarily categorical. So the types of things we're talking about, you know, classically are LSD, you know, commonly known as acid. We're talking about psilocybin, which are sometimes called magic mushrooms. Uh, we're talking about MDMA, uh, things like that. We're talking about other plant medicines and hallucinogens like um, ayahuasca, known to the South American uh, people, uh, things like that, that are create a psychedelic or uh, a non-ordinary state of consciousness, as it's called. So a lot of people are probably familiar you know, with magic mushrooms, whether they've known people in their lifetime, those, that one's a little bit more common. You know, LSD was one of the drugs um, that was more widely available back in the 60s uh, when it was um, discovered and then distributed before it was made illegal uh, in 1970 by the Nixon administration, I believe. So psychedelics kind of went through this big explosion back in the 60s. You know, they there were pop culture was a huge part of psychedelic explosion. Um, a lot of the hippie movement had a lot to do with uh, psychedelic drugs and medicine. A ton of music that we love was uh, heavily influenced by those substances. And then historically what happened was, uh, you know, the Nixon administration in the United States developed the Controlled Substances Act or what we call the War on Drugs. Uh, which was later expanded by the Reagan administration. And it kind of just closed the door on a ton of interesting research around psychedelic medicine and how it was being used. And it made it completely illegal for us to study it. And uh, it criminalized many of those drugs. So um, it was a huge kind of shutdown in the world. And then what we're seeing now is this really fascinating renaissance of psychedelic medicine. Uh, and the question, of course, everyone wonders is, like, why now? Why are we seeing a renaissance in psychedelics now? What's changed, right? Well, what's changed is we have a, a desperate need for mental health innovation. We've got far more people um, with mental health diagnoses that are really putting a strain on our system. And we haven't developed new medicines or methods for them in a, in a pretty long time. And so different um, government organizations and health organizations have said, listen, you know, we're willing to kind of open this back up because we have a need. And so a few years ago, it just slowly opened the doors ever so slightly to some clinical trials. And that happened slowly. And the research began to rebuild. And now we're at this point where um, psychedelics are reopening mainly for mental health purposes and what is called psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, PAP for short. And what that means is basically we've realized, hey, this could be hugely effective, way more effective than any other drugs we've had kind of to date. If we combine psychotherapy, which we know works well, but you know only to a certain extent and only for certain uh, diagnoses, and we combine psychotherapy with non-ordinary states of consciousness, which we find in some psychedelics. And given the fact that uh, many of these psychedelic drugs are so low on the harm scale, which is something a lot of people don't realize or have misunderstood, it's just um, a really uh, big area of potential to relieve a lot of mental health suffering. So that's kind of where we are now.
So, so is the thought that, um, you know, while you're going through some psychotherapy that you would potentially take a psychedelic and be able to therefore like kind of tap into your subconscious or is it, is it treatment that you take, um, for a mental health reason? Like, can you just talk a bit more about how those intersect? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there is a ton of great experts on this. So I, I'm happy to kind of cover it at 30,000 square feet, but, um, yeah, I always like to reference some really good people in this space. You know, um, there's a great podcast called psychedelics today and they cover psychedelic assisted psychotherapy in depth because there's lots of different, um, treatments that are being developed. But one, for example, that is being tested in Canada is ketamine assisted psychotherapy. Ketamine is um, a psychedelic and people have a few sessions and they are, you know, a lot longer in length than you would be used to in a, in a uh, traditional psychedelic session, which might be an hour with your therapist. This is multiple hours and you may have multiple sessions. And yeah, the, the, what's the, the broadest way to think about it would be that psychedelics kind of, um, they shift our willingness to uh, open up to areas of mental and emotional uh, trauma, mental and emotional health, and they somehow create um, an environment within the psyche that can heal and experience unresolved emotion, think about things differently. Um, it's almost as if there's an engagement with your mind, your heart, you know, potentially your soul your subconscious, all those things kind of shift into a more creative state. Um, And in the right set and setting and with the right support, that creative state can create long lasting mental health change, which for people with addiction or treatment resistant depression, you know, that is something that people have been seeking for years. Some people have been seeking it their whole lives. Yeah. And, and and it's, um, really interesting and, and uh, you know, kind of sad, I think as well, because, you know, there's so much stigma even still, even though we've made some strides forwards in mental health. And then I think there's still obviously stigma around psychedelics. Um, do, do you kind of see it the, the, like the conversation feels, feels like it's opening up a bit more. I mean, could it, could you see it almost being akin to, to the way we've uh, changed our conversations about cannabis? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, you know, a fair way to think about it. And a lot of people, you know, listening could relate to maybe how they thought about cannabis 10 years ago versus how they think about it today. I think it's a really good thing for us to open up to um, perceptions about drugs. um, And even what we, what is a drug, you know, how have we classified drugs um, versus medicine? Uh, Sometimes we use those words selectively in order to keep a stigma entrenched in the conversation. So yeah, I think um, what's important for us to evaluate and is largely the center of the conversation now is let's talk about harm. You know, let's get really um, frank and uh, refer to the clinical research about how harmful are these drugs because that should be the basis of stigmatization, right? Is this really dangerous? You know, what do we know about that now? And um, if people are interested, they should absolutely go check out what's called the David Nutt Harm Scale. Uh, And he did a ton of research, uh, a fellow out of the UK, kind of reclassifying um, a lot of drugs 
and his was based um, exclusively in harm. And he, I think he had nine points of harm that he identified. And he put alcohol at the top of the harm scale, physical, mental, emotional, social, behavioral. And at the very bottom, the least harmful was uh, psilocybin, cubensis, you know, uh, magic mushrooms. So it does beg the question, you know, why have we been so afraid of these things when we look at how harmful they are? Um, and what has that really been about? And you can absolutely go down some rabbit holes about what that has been about um, relative to regulation and criminalization, which I'll, I'll spare our listeners for. But it is a big question and one worth asking. But I will say that now, you know, if we look at the research and we just use kind of a more open mind, uh, scientific perspective, the stigma is really worth um, revisiting, kind of opening ourselves up to maybe this is medicine. You know, maybe we've been looking at this in the wrong way. And um, can we soften ever so slightly one step, one step at a time to help the people who need who need help? So um, we, we term this talk, how to leverage a psychedelic experience, even if you haven't had one yourself. Um, can you talk a bit about some of the, the thoughts or tips you have towards that? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, when I brought this conversation to you, it was a natural query. You know, what does this have to do with advertising? Uh, what do psychedelics have to do with advertising? They seem uh, like pretty, you know, categories that are quite um, disparate, quite far away from each other. But um, one thing I find to be interesting and a little bit humorous is like advertising does have a history with psychedelics. Um, you know, we as an industry have made advertisements about these types of messages. Um, you know, I remind, was reminding you earlier that you probably recall ads from your childhood or teenage years like drugs, drugs, drugs. It was that catchy tune that they always get stuck in my head. Drugs, drugs, drugs. Some are good, some are bad. <laughs> um, you know, the Just Say No campaign, which was um, also a part of the Reagan administration, Nancy Reagan really, what, that was her message. Uh, and then probably the ad some people saw in Canada, but more, more so in the United States of this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs, and it's the eggs in a pan ad. So, you know, advertising does have a history of influencing culture. and. Uh, sometimes we love to think of ourselves as objective, like we're outside the stories that we tell, but we are far more, um, we have far more power as storytellers uh, in how our culture evolves than I think we recognize and we realize. And that's one of the most beautiful things that I think comes about from a psychedelic experience and how you bring it alive in your advertising work is uh, you start to recognize you know, your power and you start to realize your influence and um, potentially feel a natural inclination to want to bring about health and well-being and goodness in the world. So um, many people out there maybe have had psychedelic experiences. But one thing, you know, Michelle, you and I were talking about is that more and more people are going to have these psychedelic experiences and they'll be coming back to work, you know. And so us opening up to one another, especially as creative people. Um, and uh, as creative people, you know, we use our emotions a lot to come up with things that move us, things that are beautiful and are culturally relevant. So um, 
more and more people are going to be having psychedelic experiences. They'll be changed. They'll be um, deeper understanding. You know, they could be coming back to work with a greater sense of interconnectedness, of meaning, of purpose, um, you know, an emotional availability to other creative people or your peers at work. Um, So a lot of people uh, are going to continue to explore psychedelics and we have mental health issues affect our industry as well. We've got burnout, we have depression, we have the great resignation, people uh, changing jobs or feeling dissatisfied. And it's a huge impact on our industry and our ability to innovate um, and come up with truly creative ideas. So, so is a tip then kind of, you know, whether you've had one or not kind of being open to the positive um, benefits it can bring or how would you frame it? Yeah. I mean, whether you've had a psychedelic experience or not, I think one of the overarching themes that can come forward for everyone is a willingness to open your mind, a willingness to be wrong, a willingness to change what you think or what you thought about something. Um, and that that's doesn't, uh, that doesn't detract that actually demonstrates, um, an intelligence that, that we're not stuck in our ways. So, um, you know, to get into one of the more practical ways to apply these psychedelic experiences at work, the first thing I've, you know, talked about this with you, but also in the industry with others is really, we need to reframe how we're talking about innovation. Because as advertisers, we love to talk about innovation all the time. What's new? What's novel? What's in the metaverse? What's TikTok's new functionality? Um, But when psychedelics begin to expand our consciousness and potentially make us feel more connected, the question becomes not just what is novel, what not just what's good, and uh, sorry, not just what's novel or what's new, but what is good? What is um, innovation when it's framed as meaningful progression on something? So um, when we think about innovation, we're usually, like, oh, it's just, if it's new, it's cool. Well, I think we can do better. I think we could reframe innovation to mean, you know, we want it to be new and impactful on something like a social problem or, um, yeah, an issue. So it's, it's about kind of deepening our definition of innovation in advertising, which is one of my first tips or recommendations for how to apply a psychedelic experience at work. So kind of like newer novels, not good enough, but how do we ensure it's actually making an impact? Yeah. And a meaningful impact, you know, which it's time that we move beyond just, Hey, what does this do? Uh, you know, I think we're at a time in our history where it's like, okay, let's do something new and cool and beautiful and innovative that also has a purpose, uh, a meaningful purpose that moves something ahead. Uh, we're smart enough for that. I absolutely think that we're intelligent enough as an industry to do that. Okay. What else, what else would you uh, recommend? How else can we yeah. apply think about this? The second is I think we, uh, we need to really look at how our methodologies and frameworks uh, really keep us, you know, they're good because they keep us on a structure that allows us to produce campaign ideas and brand ideas. And they're great. But at the same time, you have to also be wary of methodology and structure because um, it will subconsciously guide you towards more predictable destinations. 
So my suggestion is go back and reevaluate methodologies. You know, is your methodology exclusively built on rational behavior? Because we just know more about human beings now. You know, they're not just rational, they're emotional, they're subconscious, you know, um, there's so much more at play. Human beings are so much more dynamic than, you know, we have thought. And we pretend as though they're so rational and they're just going to do X, Y, Z, and it's very predictable. So my suggestion is go back to your methods, go back to your frameworks and ask whether you've even built in emotional intelligence to the extent that you think is necessary and represents the human experience. Um, So review your methods and um, be brave about building more of the human experience into those into those structures that guide your creative activity. I wonder, so number if two. I wonder if there's an opportunity as well. Cause I mean, I, I fall into this trap a lot and I think a lot of people do as well as it's so hard to oftentimes, I think, remove yourself and your own experiences when you're building something like methodologies or frameworks. Like it makes sense for you because that's your lived experience, but it's hard mm-hmm. to step into someone else's uh, shoes or to, you know, get rid of your own biases or assumptions. And so if you are coming at this with more of an open mind um, and, you know, maybe coming at it with a different lens, uh, you, you, you can open up um, how you're seeing things as well, not just, you know, rational versus emotional, but kind of like my perspective versus someone else's perspective. Absolutely. And don't dismiss like as, as planners, and strategists sometimes um, varying points of perception make make the work messy. You know, it's like oh, I don't want to acknowledge those points of perception because that doesn't make my strategy neat and tidy. Well, you know, it's time that we kind of level up on our strategic thinking, um, so so as to incorporate different points of perspective. And make it neat and tidy, you know, demonstrate a more complex understanding of the human experience, not just, oh, we're going to build it around this one profile, this one person, and this one behavior. Um, You know, it's just too narrow minded. Yeah. And I think, you know, people are inherently complex and nuanced. They they aren't neat and tidy. Um, And the digital landscape is not neat and tidy. And it becomes even less so with every passing day. Yeah. So that's number two. Um, number three is one that we come back to all the time. Maybe, the, maybe this is just a hobby horse that all strategists ride, but, um, it's about changing the brief. So kind of an extension of number two, but, uh, looking at the creative brief differently, you know, um, specifically around contradiction, you know, about how human beings are contradictory and that creates a lot of creative interest Um, I'm this, but for some reason I'm doing that, you know, um, we sometimes call those things tension, uh, and we try to leverage people's contradictions, which I also kind of caution us against, you know, just because we understand how people work doesn't mean we should always be leveraging it in order, uh, for our own gain. So, um, changing the brief and, um, part of the brief that, that we use at Gene or the philosophy that we use at Gene is about including ethical and moral considerations. You know, just because we can doesn't mean we necessarily should. And um, we include that in our discussions constantly. So change the brief, talk to your colleagues about it. Changing the brief is a huge task. Anybody who's done it at, at an agency will kind of 
bemoan it because it seems simple, but if you want it to be used and adopted and understood by everybody in the agency, there's a lot of education. Sometimes there's training, um, you know, getting the whole agency to think even one or two degrees differently can be an enormous task, but absolutely worth the undertaking um, in order to integrate the, the wisdom that comes forward sometimes in psychedelic experiences. So that's number three. I'm, I'm interested when you talked about um, in your briefs, you guys include ethical and moral considerations. Is that kind of, do you think, more specific to health and wellness type work? Or, or can you talk a bit more about that? I'm, I'm quite curious as to what that looks like. Yeah, um, I mean, I think it kind of um, begs the question, you know, what is health and wellness? Well, at Gene, we don't just think we don't just think about individual health and wellness. We think about family health and wellness. We then think about community health and wellness. We think about systems health and wellness. Um, we think about social uh, and global health and wellness. So um, it's important when you're having all those conversations and so many organizations have started to kind of get a little more educated on diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. Even if those are still in their infancy, it's good that we're developing that conversation, you know, that's an ethical and a moral conversation that has been missing in advertising for a long time. So that's a part of the conversation. You know, it comes up when, uh, with targeting as an example, I don't know if other strategists have had these conversations where they wanted to target someone that may or may not have a health or wellness concern. And even if the brand or the company has a product that could be helpful, you know, it is leveraging an opportunity that may or may not be ethical. And so we've had to have some tough conversations um, and media companies aren't, uh, aren't always the leaders necessarily when it comes to those types of things. So again, you have to say like, we could do that, but should we, you know, this came up a lot when the Facebook whistleblower was making headlines around that platform being specifically harmful for young girls. So then the question we had internally was like, what do we do? Um, are we doing things that are good and healthy for young girls when we advertise on Facebook, especially to um, young women, um, adults, you know, we don't advertise to children, but it's, it's worth the conversation. And as advertisers, we love to push those conversations into the closet and say, no, 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 we don't have to worry about that. That's not uh, that's not our role to consider ethics. Well, if we did consider ethics, our industry could regain some very interesting power that um, we've potentially kind of lost over the years. Okay, so we, you know we've talked a bit about um, reframing innovation um, based on leveraging a psychedelic experience, um, building new methodologies, and, and changing the brief. What what other tips would you uh, offer us? Yeah, number four is one that's close to my heart and uh, is more important than many people might uh, give credence to it. But it's about deepening your relationships at work, you know, especially the now that so many people are working from home. Uh, one of the best ways to leverage a psychedelic experience if you've had one, um, but even if you haven't, is about starting to have deeper, more authentic, more meaningful, uh, more emotionally available conversations with your peers. You know, we are in the business of creativity. And if you can't open your heart to 
your creative director and that's what they want. You know, your creative director would love that. Um, Not that you necessarily walk into your CD's office and just kind of like blast off about how your mother-in-law drove you nuts that weekend or something. But um, that opening up about the human experiences that really touch you, that creates richness for creatives, richness that we so desperately need. So develop trust with your colleagues, develop uh, meaningful interactions, start to practice talking about how you feel, develop emotional vocabulary, you know, um, learn how to hold space if you've never done that before. And if you don't, you haven't even heard that term before, you know, that's absolutely okay. But um, holding space is just an ability to be with other people when they're having a human and emotional experience and not try to jump in and solve it or tell them what they should do or um, be annoyed. You know, you just let them be human. So having deeper relationships with your colleagues, um, it might take some time, might take some practice. You might fumble a little bit. You could have a few failures, but they're going to be small. And it's worth it. It's worth creating uh, deeper relationships at work. It's good for the work. It's good for creativity. It's good for you. It's good for your teammates. Uh, It's going to make you feel like you have more meaning. Uh, It's going to help the process move forward. It's going to help you feel like you want to stay at the company for longer because you have a deeper tie to the organizational effort. So try not to just stay up in the superficial land of... um, not being authentic, not telling people what you really think. Uh, develop trust and and start getting more skin in the game at work. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting because oftentimes, you know, in advertising, we're thinking about ourselves or we like to think about ourselves as kind of experts on people and, and humanity. And we're constantly looking for insights and, you know, we're, we're trying to get into people's heads and really understand them. And yet, if we can't be open and honest and transparent, amongst ourselves, uh, maybe it's that much harder to relate to other people. A hundred percent. You know, have you ever had the experience where a strategist came to you and said they were stuck? No one's ever done that to me. (laughs) No one's ever done that to me. I've done that to people and said like, listen, uh, there's a block here for me. I'm not sure if it's personal. I can't seem to like open up uh, to this. Would you help me kind of unravel this or examine this with me. And that's another indirect benefit of psychedelics is uh, living an examined life, you know, getting into the weeds of what it means to be human. So um, yeah, that's if we could just be more authentic with each other, trust each other, like your job's not on the line. If you go to your CD's office and say, can you talk to me about the trust between a father and son? Because I'm trying to write this brief and I just can't get into it. And you have a son and like, could you just open up to me a little bit about it like that? And that's probably happening in a ton of agencies all the time, but we could be doing it better and more. And, um, and it's difficult sometimes not being in a physical office with people anymore. Yeah. I mean, I I think, you know, how many times have we bemoaned, um, you know, ads that we've seen or, you know, every category has a stereotypical ad where it feels like they only touch a very surface level understanding of people or very throwback, a very stereotypical definition. Um, Mm -hmm. So I I can see how this would, you know, have immediate uh, benefit in terms of just even, even allowing yourself to go there, make yourself, you know, let's use the buzzword vulnerable um, to each other. Yeah. 
And learning how to be vulnerable is weird, you know, and if you don't feel weird, I'm not even sure if you're doing it right <laughs> because it needs to feel a bit awkward. And that's how you know you're doing it. If you've never felt awkward, then have you, have you truly been vulnerable? You know, have you really risked anything? Um, and like I said, it's going to take a little bit of practice. Start doing it on a small scale. Trust your closest colleagues. You know, open up a little bit at a time, not for an hour. And just see how you feel after, you know. See if it makes the work work better. And I, my guess is it probably will. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because um, I think there's obviously a lot of trust that goes into even, you know, creative vulnerability or strategic vulnerability, right? Like you, you put yourself out there when you share something and you're like, shit, I hope this doesn't sound completely stupid. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Like you want to feel like we want to be able to risk things sometimes. Like uh, we're so risk averse and that's something culturally we're definitely in a more risk averse place because of the last few years, because of the pandemic. So becoming aware of all of our tendencies to play it safe, of the client's tendency to play it safe, you know, of all of our fear and recognize that when we are afraid, we are drawn to stagnation. We're drawn to the things that have worked in a different context. We're and, and sometimes it takes real courage to say, I know you feel like you want to do the same thing you've always done. You want to stagnate, but it's actually the worst thing we could do right now. And uh, let's develop trust with each other. And these are the hard conversations to have with clients, but, um, and with each other. But like I said, if we don't do this with each other, there's no way we're going to get clients to believe us. So start with your team, start with your team. All right. Um, what's your what's your final tip? Yeah, the last thing I often say that you can do, whether you've had a psychedelic experience or not, is um, talk to someone, you know, tell someone, open up about how you are. Um, so if you're in a dark place mentally, emotionally or spiritually, and it's affecting your creativity, it's affecting your productivity at work, um, you know, talk to a colleague or a manager or an HR representative that you trust. And we're putting a lot of strain on those people for sure. But um, it is part of our duty as leaders to demonstrate openness, uh, demonstrate that we care about our teammates and um, show them support in the face of negative cultural stigma around mental health issues. So um, if you're a manager and you may still have, you know, mental health stigma or you're afraid of your own mental health or you're not familiar with the terminology uh, everyone should be getting mental health training especially mental health first aid training uh, which we do at plus company uh, for leaders that wish to and um, it helps to keep our creative people healthy you know part of nurturing the creative impulse is ensuring that our people are not mentally and emotionally sick and so if we, if we do truly value creativity, we have to also care about mental, emotional health and well-being. It would be so short-sighted to say, oh, we don't care about your mental, emotional health. That's not my prerogative. But I do want your creativity, which is hugely uh, mentally and emotionally taxing. It requires a healthy human mentally and emotionally. So um, it's completely reasonable to acknowledge the reality of your mental, emotional well-being and how it impacts the work 
and um, tell someone that you trust. So that's my last piece of whether you've had a psychedelic experience or not, it's great for you to open up, you know, the way I am uh, to say, I have had psychedelic experiences. They changed my life for the better. I've had profound healing and they've influenced my work and now feel called to, um, you know, open the door and demonstrate that, you know, you can be courageous. There is healing available, you know, your creativity, um, if it is currently stuck or in stagnation can get better and uh, open up to someone you trust because it's worth it. So your top five tips on how to leverage a psychedelic experience, uh, whether you've had one or not. Um, let me see if I've missed any. Reframe innovation at your agency. Um, build or explore new methodologies or frameworks. Revisit the brief, perhaps change it. Start deepening your work relationships, which I really liked because I think there's just so many, so much opportunity here and it makes a, a ton of sense. Um, and tell someone. Um Anything else you want to add to that? I, I really appreciate you, you know, sharing this uh, with us and, and, you know, making yourself vulnerable by, by, by telling us um, how we can best leverage it. Yeah, the only last thing I'll say that leave people with is that, and I alluded to this earlier, but I think as, adverti- as advertisers, we have a role in our cultural, um, societal health and well-being beyond performing a skill of graphic design or trafficking ads. You know, we we have a role in the evolution of our species. Our industry has a role in the stories that we tell and where those stories take us as a society, as a culture. So I think um, it's worth kind of considering you can find greater meaning in advertising if we took it all more seriously. And if we kind of um, cared more deeply about the stories that we tell and want to make sure that they create health and well-being for our own teams, for our clients, but also for society at large. So it's something to think about, you know, could we consider that uh, perhaps our role as advertisers goes beyond just performance of a skill, but maybe we do influence health and well-being and culture. And wouldn't that be exciting? Because we could embody more um, of our hearts, of our minds, of humanity. And let's do that. That sounds like a pretty rad idea to me. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's certainly more exciting than just selling dish soap. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you, Emily, so much um, for spending some time with us and, and sharing your experience. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to have the conversation, Michelle. So thank you. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Grow Up. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share this episode and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts.